Okay, so let's start with our visualization of the merit field. And really understanding that the wise and compassionate Buddha and his Sangha followers, those who have realized the ultimate nature, that those people are our true friends who will never betray us, who always have our benefit foremost in their mind. And so thus it makes sense for us to turn to them for spiritual guidance. So in this world right now, at this instant, so many different things are going on. Some people being born, some dying, the rest of us aging, maybe getting sick. And some people overjoyed, some people horribly depressed, And the whole thing is occurring under the influence of afflictions and karma. So when you really let that sink in, that everything we're witnessing is supported by the very deluded view of ignorance that misapprehends how things exist and accompanied by ignorance's best friend, the self-centered thought, which again is based on unreasonable ways of thinking. And yet, all of us want to be happy and not suffer. And all of us have the potential to become fully awakened. And yet, all this mess is going on, fueled by misconceptions, wrong graspings in our own minds. And if there were ever a tragedy, this is the biggest one.
that somehow miraculously a few of us here in this slightly lowly populated uh, county in the corner of the U.S. has the opportunity to listen to Buddha's wisdom right now. And how incredibly fortunate that is. So in our motivation, let's really be aware of that fortune and use it for the benefit of all sentient beings by helping to propel ourselves and everybody else on the path to full awakening. And obviously this is done, it must be done, with a feeling of warmth and compassion for all beings. So again, I have to introduce the teaching, saying that this is not a teaching that is uh, given to people new to the Dharma. Yeah, it's in chapter eight of a ten-chapter uh, book, and it's given in the context of clearing the mind of all distractions, so that we can generate uh, deep meditative stability that focuses with wisdom on the ultimate nature. Yeah. So if our mind wants to develop that kind of understanding, clearly we have to get rid of so much of the garbage way of thinking. Otherwise, we can't direct our mind towards anything virtuous at all. So one, what is one of the biggest garbage ways of thinking that we have is how we relate to the body, okay? This is not what society uh, says is a garbage way of thinking. This is one of the greatest ways of making money in our society is by fussing about the body, its appearance, uh, everything that happens to the body, yeah? And based on, it's based on seeing this body as something clean and beautiful and the source of pleasure and something that is really, truly existent and is kind of almost my identity because if I, when I die and I don't have this body, I don't know who I am anymore. And so there's like layer upon layer of hallucination um, about our body 
that is present in society and uh, that has conditioned our own minds, you know. Um, and we haven't even realized so much how it's conditioned our minds. It just goes in there because, uh, you know, we see it on TV, we see it on billboards, we see it in the way our family members relate to each other. Um, it's all over. So we just assume, yes, this is the proper view of the body. Yeah. Um, but what Shantideva is saying here is don't assume that. Let's look at what the body is, first of all, and see if our idea of what it is is realistic. And then let's look at how we relate to that, the body as it actually is. Okay? So in, in the Dharma, there's two ways of looking at the body. One is in the context of having a precious human rebirth, you know, which is based on having a human body. And that rebirth comes along with, you know, the human body comes along human intelligence. And human intelligence is very special in terms of being able to understand and practice and actualize the Dharma. So that in that way, having a human body is to be something quite wonderful. Yeah. And we take care of our body. We, um, treat it well, we keep it clean, but we don't have to, um, what do you say, indulge it. The other way of seeing the body is uh, how we're so distracted by the body. Yeah, And of course, we're distracted when we sit down to meditate, you know, our knees hurt, our back hurts, our throat tickles, uh, our, you know, bug, you know, the fly landed on my nose and I can't concentrate. Uh, you know, everything, you know, you go to bow to the Buddha and do your prostrations. And, you know, it's like, it's getting harder and harder to get up each time. And I never, this is not supposed to happen to me. It hasn't happened in many decades. Why is it happening now? You know, well, the body's getting old. No, it's not. <laughs> you know? Um, okay? So there's that aspect of the body just being painful and, and difficult to handle. Yeah. Um, but then there's the other way where this whole body is beautiful and the body is the source of our pleasure. Yeah, and primarily sexual pleasure. That's one of our greatest attachments. And society is filled with advertising sexual pleasure. You know, I mean, this is how you choose your toothpaste and your laundry detergent about, you know, based on which is going to give you the most sex appeal. <laughs> yeah, and we fall for it. We laugh at it, and we say, but maybe, this is stupid, but maybe there is a little bit of truth that if I uh, get rid of my dandruff, I'll have more dates and more people will love me. You know, I don't think dandruff is the big commercial nowadays, is it? When I grew up, 
so many commercials were about dandruff, you know. And the, the very handsome man in the office, you know. But none of the women wanted to go out with him because he had dandruff. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this was really pounded into our heads. Yeah. You remember those commercials? Yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know. And then, of course, using, um, we found those on, on the web last time. Some of the ivory soap commercials with the mother and the daughter whose hands you can't tell apart because they both look so young, because Mama uses ivory soap. Yes. Um, So you get, you know, it's like, this is silly, but maybe ivory soap does. will make my hands look younger, and, you know, that will keep my marriage uh, intact. My husband won't look at other women because I still have beautiful hands like our daughter. Okay? So we laugh at it, but we follow it. Okay? So uh, Shanti Deva in this chapter is shooting all of this down. And he's been going on for many, many verses now, many weeks. We've been hearing about what the body is and what we have to do to get pleasure from the body, as specifically uh, sexual pleasure, okay? Because it isn't that you just go, it's not, I mean, the animals are so simple, you know? They just see each other, boing, they make it, and it's done, okay? Human beings, <laughs> yeah, and you have babies, and there's no discussion about you know, the mother dog and the, the, is it a real baby or, there's nothing, you know, it's like simple. Human beings, very complicated, yeah? And so he's bringing out the complications and he's talking from a male point of view because he's talking mostly to heterosexual males, but he means he's actually addressing everybody and whoever it is you happen to be sexually attracted to. And, uh, you know, what we have to do to make ourselves look desirable and be desirable and hang on to the relationship and how our status in society is related to that, how we have to have a certain home, a certain good-looking spouse, a certain car. So many things in our life have to be adjudicated to fit the image of who we think we are so that we can attract somebody, so that we can have sexual pleasure. So he's linking all of this. I mean, it's like when you really sit back and watch, it is amazing you know, how much all of this is uh, the conditioning we receive and how much it controls our life. Yeah? Okay. 
So right now, where we left off last time, he was talking a lot about how our body is just basically a poop and pee factory. And not just a poop and pee factory, but every orifice in our body exudes disgusting stuff that we have to wash away, starting with the sleep and the earwax and the snot and then vomit and how even we bite into something and chew it, then it's regarded as dirty. Nobody else wants it. And then you get to the lower parts of our body and like filth galore. And this is what we want to hug and kiss and what we do all sorts of backflips to try and get. So we'll start in verse 62. Even attractive things such as savory foods, cooked rice, vegetables, French pastry, chocolate. Yeah. Uh, um, ven- venerable um, Sultram's enchiladas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Make the ground dirty and unclean. Should they be spat out after being in the mouth? True. Isn't it? Okay. 63. Although such uncleanliness is obvious, and it is obvious, but we totally ignore it. Totally, yeah? Um, Although such cleanliness is obvious, if I still have doubts, I should go to the cemeteries and look at the unclean bodies of others that have been thrown away there. So in ancient India, the cemeteries are different than, they aren't like forest lawn. Where I grew up, there was a forest lawn right off the freeway. It looked like this beautiful park. Yeah. And I heard now that sometimes people may have weddings or receptions at, at, at these kind of facilities because they look like parks and they're so beautiful. But in ancient India, yeah, somebody died and you just wrapped it in some cheap cloth and threw the body in the cemetery. And then the jackals and the dogs, you know, and the birds would come and have lunch. And the Sangha, you know, as renounced beings, uh, and it was very hard to get cloth in ancient India, um, had to pick up pieces of cloth from wherever they found it. And one of the best places was the cemetery. Yeah. yeah they didn't have, uh, you know, kind of what it's the, yeah, fabric store, you know, where you go, where it's all nice and clean and wrapped and, yeah. Okay. So if I still have doubts, I should go to the cemeteries and look at the unclean bodies of others that have been thrown away there. Because I think, you know, when you just put a body in a cemetery, first you take away everything that could possibly be useful from it, you know, like they did in the crematoriums during the Holocaust, okay? They pulled the teeth. uh, When people had gold in their teeth, they pulled the teeth to take the gold out, yeah? Everybody had to undress. They had to turn over their money. Anything that was valuable was taken from them. 
uh, before they were killed. And then the bodies were just taken from the gas chamber to the crematorium and burned. Yeah. And for many years, people totally ignored that fact that that was going on. It's said that the world didn't know it was going on, but the smell of burning bodies is very distinct. And how you can miss that? Okay, 64. Having realized that when their skin is rent open, they give rise to a great deal of fear. How will such things as these ever again give rise to joy? So when you take a body and it's opened, yeah, you'll see these. I described it last last time about uh, you know going to the autopsy and how they cut and peel back your your scalp and cut here. And okay, uh, most of us, you know, many people, uh, when they see what's actually in the body, it's scary. Yeah, and we have to ask why is it scary. Yeah. Why do we find the inside of the body scary? I think because it reminds us of our own mortality and how fragile our lives are. Yeah. And that is scary when you have an identity you want to preserve. Okay. So it gives rise to a great deal of fear. So if the bodies in their natural state like that give rise to fear, how are they ever going to give rise to joy? Because it's the same body, isn't it? Yeah. It's the same body that is all decked out that looks so beautiful and the one in the cemetery. Okay. 65. Oh, now he gets into this big thing about the smell of the body, okay? So we just went through a lot about the looks of the body, yeah? Uh, so 65, the scents with which someone's body is anointed are sandalwood and the like, okay? So he gives us the romantic version. You know, she walks in with sand smelling like sandalwood and uh, what are the flowers, the jasmine flowers in her hair, silken hair, you know, used with the right kind of um, uh, shampoo, of course. Um, okay, so the sense with which someone's body is anointed with sandalwood and the like, but not that of others' bodies. So when you anoint the body, you do it with something that smells good, like sandalwood. You don't anoint it with the sweat and, and poop of somebody else's body, which stinks. Okay? So why am I attached to others' bodies? Yeah. Because of scents that are other than theirs. So Okay, so you're here. There's the person that you're attracted to. You give them sandalwood to make them smell good. You don't give them the smell of other people's bodies, okay? And you don't like the actual smell of their body either. Yeah, okay. 
So then he's asking, why am I attached to somebody's body? Yeah, because of how they smell when the scent isn't even their smell. It's some artificial thing. Okay, so, uh, you know, in India it was sandalwood. Now it's, you know, aftershave lotion, deodorant, perfume, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and there's a big market for all, for all of that, isn't there? Big market. 66. Since the body has a naturally foul order, isn't it good to be unattached to it? He's appealing to our wisdom at this point. Yeah. Why do those who crave for the meaningless things of the world anoint this body with pleasant sense? Okay. It's like putting sandalwood or, uh, you know, some expensive perfume all over your toilet. <laughs> it's like, wh wh why are you doing that? You know, oh, you, well, you're a person who craves for the meaningless things of this life, so that's what you do. Yeah, you put nice-smelling things on top of foul-smelling things so that uh, you can delude yourself. It's true, isn't it? Yeah? 67. And furthermore, if it is the pleasant scent of sandalwood, how can it come from the body? It doesn't. It comes from a tree. Yeah? So here's a tree that smells better than the body. But we want to copulate with the body. We don't want to copulate with the tree. But we want the body to smell like a tree. Yeah? When you look at it, that's right. I mean, it's hysterical. It's, it's so ab absurd. And furthermore, if it is the pleasant scent of sandalwood, how can it come from the body? So why am I attached to others' bodies? Because of the scents that are other than their own natural scent. Yeah. And I'm not only attached to it, but I give them the things to anoint themselves so they smell better. And of course, if we want to attract somebody, we don't wait for somebody to give us the smells. We go out and buy it. Okay. 68. Since the naked body left in its natural state is very frightening due to its long hair and nails, its yellowish, foul-smelling teeth, and its being coated with the odor of dirt. Okay, so the naked body left in its natural state. The body dies. Yeah. It, now we all rush off, you know, immediately in the hospital. If somebody dies, they are covered. 
with a sheet so nobody has to see the dead body, and they are whisked away on a gurney to a refrigerator. Yeah, I've never been in the refrigerator in a hospital. I imagine it's one of these huge things like we saw during COVID, remember, when they were having so many bodies uh, that there was no room in the hospital, and so they had these trailers and just kind of like bunk beds, you know, and you just have a corpse there, and that's it, you know, in its body bag, because you don't want to see the living, the, the dead body, you know. Okay. So, it, it, nowadays, it's whisked away, yeah. And then when they have the family viewing, yeah, uh, so some families in, want the body embal- embalmed, and, you know, the hair is fixed, it's nicely done, it's put in a coffin, you know, coffins are, look more comfortable than the bed you sleep in when you're alive, you know, and they're, they're mahogany and, you know, these shiny um, uh, handles. And on the inside, the fabric looks like velvet and it just surrounds the body so nicely. Everything's clean and immaculate. Okay. And still nobody wants to touch it. Okay. That's if it's been embalmed. Okay, and uh, and the the skin will look kind of the natural color. You know? You're kind of wait. You look at it, and it looks like the person's sleeping because that's what your parents told you anyway when you were a kid. When you ask what death is, somebody goes to sleep for a long time and doesn't wake up. Yeah, remember that? Because um, our parents have no idea what's going on. Um, you know, so it, it's done like that. In some traditions, they don't embalm the body. And like in the Jewish tradition, you don't embalm the body, and uh, you're not allowed to use expensive coffins and things like that. It has to be put in a plain, unadorned box. But still, they make it when the family goes in to see. They have a special kind of tinted pink light, I guess, for white people, so that the body looks, you know, kind of... You know, it doesn't look like a, a dead body, except you've never seen your mom with that expression before. <laughs> yeah, and mom would not like her hair like that. Yeah, you, you know. I mean, the way when I saw my mom's body, they had her hair just brushed back like that. Oh, she would not have liked that. I never. She never wore her hair like that. Okay. Um. So, you know, they make it look as natural as possible. (laughs) When my dad died, the three of us kids went in together to view the body, and we were standing behind the body. And I don't know, my I think it was my brother, maybe my sister, suggested that we take a picture together. So there's my dad in the coffin with the three kids around his head. And you're so conditioned when you take family photos, you're supposed to smile. 
and you start to smile, and then you realize, no, this is not something to smile about. Yeah? That's... Okay. So, it, so the naked body, left in its natural state, is very frightening due to its long hair and nails. This is if you, it's not cleaned up afterwards. I've always wondered, you know, why when somebody dies, do they want it? The first thing that people want to do is bathe the body. And I always wonder, why do you want to bathe the body? It, you don't, it's old. It's, you want to throw it away now. I, I, I don't, you know bathe something, you wash something before I throw it away. I throw it away when it's dirty. Well, you know, this is why, because it's scary to people. So you wash it. Yeah. Because death sometimes, all sorts of stuff comes out of the body when you die. Yeah. And, you know, it can it can be, mess. you know, some people die and it's, and not so messy, and some people die, and, you know, it's, it's quite messy when they die. Okay, so it's very frightening due to its long hair, knotted long hair, you know, not washed with the proper soap. Um, long hair and nails, maybe they've been sick, you know, and also uh, old people's nails. Yeah, if you've ever taken care of your parents or grandparents or even your own toenails, um, you know, they get thick, they get discolored. Yeah, they're kind of, you know, they don't look like baby's toenails. Yeah. Okay. And it's yellowish, foul-smelling teeth. Yeah. So your teeth turn, maybe, you know, when you die, maybe you don't have your dentures in. Oh my goodness, you're seen without your dentures. Yeah, you look like an old person with no teeth. Well, you are an old person with no teeth, but who wants to look like that? Okay, yeah, you want to have your dentures in. Okay, and it's being coated with the odor of dirt. Okay, so since the body is like that in its natural state, Shantideva asks us in verse 69, why do I make such an effort to polish it? If that's what it actually is naturally, yeah, why do I make an effort to polish it? I'm trying to make it into something it isn't. And that's like cleaning a weapon that will cause me harm. Now, how does somebody else's attractive body, how is that like a weapon that will cause me harm? Or how is my own body like a weapon that would cause me harm? You know, why do I polish it and make it look good? Well, uh, think about it. How does attachment to our own body function? uh, That attachment makes becomes a weapon to us, yeah? The more attached we are to our body, the more we suffer with, as it ages, when it's sick, when it's old, when it does what 
we don't want it to do and doesn't do what we want it to do. Okay? So the idea here with that sentence is the more attachment we have to the body, uh, the more suffering it, it, that we experience. And we can so easily see that, that, you know, when something is a little bit uncomfortable in our body, it just takes over our mind. That's all we can think about is my little toe hurts or whatever it is that's uncomfortable. It impinges on our whole way of being in the world. We can't do what we did before because the body is, is uncomfortable. And so the more attached we are, the more reactive we are to the discomfort of the body. Okay? And there starts, therein starts the, um, the, uh, adventure of trying to find the perfect meditation cushion. Yeah? Because you can't meditate unless your body is completely comfortable. But when you sit on a cushion that's too soft, it's hard to sit up straight. When you sit on a cushion that's too hard, pinches the underside of your tush, okay? When the cushion is square, it's the wrong shape. When it's round, it's also the wrong shape. When it's half moon shaped, then you feel like you're on the potty. <laughs> when it's a bench, yeah, you're sitting, why am I sitting on this bench? Okay, so you sit in a chair, but you can't find a comfortable chair either because you want to sit up straight and the chair reclines. Or you want to recline and the chair sits up straight. And then they have these big fat chairs, you know, so that you're sitting in, and it's hard to get in them, and it's hard to get out of them, and sometimes they have armrests, and they're in your way, and you say, why don't they have pews? But then you remember what pews are like, and you don't want to sit on a pew again, and how can you meditate when your body is uncomfortable? You know? And then your body gets a little bit comfortable, and then the bottom of your feet start to itch. <laughs> okay? Or your back itches. Or you're sweating. Yeah? Or your hair falls in your face. Yeah? It's impossible. Have you ever found the perfect meditation cushion environment? in a room that is exactly the right temperature, not too hot, not too cold. We have to have the right temperature with enough fresh air, but not too much fresh air. And everybody in the room needs to agree on the right temperature and on the right amount of fresh air. So then we have lots of discussions about how much to open the window and how much to uncover the vent, 
So more air could come in and one person wants hot air and one person wants cold air and one person wants the window open, the other person wants it closed. This is material for skits, okay? But this is, it happens in real life, doesn't it? Yeah. And we are just adamant that it has to be exactly comfortable. Otherwise, I can't meditate. So we never might really wind up meditating. Yeah. Okay. So when it talks about the body being like a weapon that causes me harm, it interferes with what we want to do. Okay. Hence, this entire world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. Okay, there he said it. It is, you know, exertion. So much exertion about our our appearance. And it is insanity. And you look at some of the people that are photographed and are famous for their bodies. And, you know, at the Met and the, at the Emmys, at the whatever it is, I mean, they spend the whole day getting dressed. Yeah. I remember in Michelle Obama's book, she was talking about the position women are put into and how before any occasion, she said, Barack just buzzed his hair and that was it. You know, he was ready to go. She had to spend hours sitting there, okay, for somebody to do her hair in the right way and make it curl in the right way and go this way and that way and put on the makeup and the powder and all the stuff on your eyes and eyebrows and everything here. And she said it just took hours and she had to sit there like a mannequin you know, she could be doing so many more interesting, useful things, but society's image of what a woman had to look like, you know, and she was the president's wife, so no exception. Yeah. So you look at, you know, what what is involved, and yeah, so you spend hours making yourself look good. You go to some ridiculous event where everybody is trying to be around the most important people or to be the most important person and to look good and get status. Okay. By the end of the event, your feet are killing you, especially women who have to wear five-inch heels. I think they should put men in five-inch heels. Yeah? I mean, who who says that, who says women have to wear five-inch heels? Yeah. Do the men say it? Do the women say it? Yeah. Where is that coming from? And what happens if you don't do it? There was one. They had some beauty contest recently. I don't know which one. I think beauty contest is stupid. But it was the first time some woman um, was there without makeup. 
Yeah, she was in a beauty contest without makeup. Hmm? Yeah. And she was the, the only contestant that was noticed because she was so all the other beautiful ones with their makeup were glossed over in the news article. <laughs> I didn't follow the story. <laughs> okay. It's just when you look at it. I've been really thinking a lot lately about how we are conditioned, um, you know, in, in gender roles, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to act like, you know, what you can say, what you can't say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's so much conditioning about that. And we joke about it a lot as, uh, you know, because our little committee to build the Buddha Hall is a group of women dealing with men in a profession that is a male profession. We have not seen one woman come across to work on, on the site yet. And those guys prefer to deal with men. They don't know what to do with women. Yeah, well, they know what to do, but not with us. <laughs> And, you know, and then they have to deal with us and we have to find some way to communicate with them. Yeah. And this was why one of them was, I think, quite rude to you because, you know, he wasn't used to having a, a woman comment on the work of his team. Yeah. When I went to the audologist um, recently, I was saying that, you know, I have a, a harder time hearing women's voices than men's voices. And he said, well, first of all, the low tone, he said, it goes further, just the way the waves work. But he, he, the audologist said that women also don't speak as loud. Now, why is that? Why don't women speak as loud? That's how we've been trained. We're yeah. Not We're not supposed to. Why not? Insecure. Hmm? Insecure. Yeah. Could be being insecure. It could be your role is to sit there and be pretty and obedient. Yeah, like children, to be seen but not heard. Yeah, Why do women in companies, you know, at board meetings and all, have so much difficulty speaking up? And why, when they give good ideas, the ideas are often dissed at the beginning, and then later on, some man says the same idea, and everybody says, what a great idea that is. This has been documented. Okay. So why is that? And how do we get trained to be like that? Do, are we even aware of the conditioning that we have? Yeah. And are men aware of the conditioning they have to be able to walk in the room and just 
say whatever they want to. Yeah. So it's very interesting to start looking at what's what are our our thoughts, what are our preconceptions about this, and where did they come from, and do they have any merit or are they ridiculous? Okay, and I think there's a lot to look at there for both men and women, you know, because then the men, you know, this whole um, what's it called now, toxic masculinity. Yeah, how men are, are conditioned in that way. <laughs> Nobody telling me I'm the boss. I'm not backing down for anything. You know, I mean, this is why I don't think Putin will ever give up. Yeah. Because he's a man and he cannot back down. The worst part is that we are encouraged to be like that by our moms. Yes. And men are encouraged to be like that by our mom as well. Yeah. And I by was dad. Yes. But I mean, like, if, if you have a mom at home, then mm. you, the mom tells you exactly how to be a woman. Mm -hmm. So, I perfectly remember when I was growing up and, you know, when you go through the age after your period, mm -hmm. I was not able to be on the bicycles, to be around with all the friends. I had to change completely. Wow. So it's very painful. Mm -hmm. And you believe it. Yeah. Very painful. Yeah. All sorts of superstition given. Yeah. And then the men by their their dads, you know, and by their moms. You can't cry. Yeah. Not only can't you cry, you're not supposed to have emotions. You're supposed to be stoic and bear everything. And inside what's going on, you know, there's a mess. But outside, I'm in control. Okay. And, you know, we're, yeah, we're trained like this. We pass it down to others. Yeah. And often when it's pointed out, um, people don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard a number of men say that this, all this discussion about toxic masculinity is rubbish. You know, it's all foolishness. They don't like to hear it. And I think some women don't like to see, you know, how as a woman, your your ultimate worth is your sex appeal. That's the bottom line. doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Okay. And it's difficult for people to hear when they've based their whole life on that. Okay, so when it talks about you, as a weapon, you know, it's how we uh, we limit ourselves by buying into society's conditioning. But even if we don't buy into it, we still have to deal with it. Yeah, and it's difficult to deal with. Yeah, I can imagine it, you know, 
I I can imagine that you know the, the what is it Prince he's not Prince Charles King Charles I imagine sometimes he would like to have a good cry because his mom died you know can you imagine him crying in front of the cameras no never yeah maybe one tear because that that is appropriate but you know he's not allowed. but you know his mom just died. I'm sure he has feelings about it. Okay. Okay. Stanza 70. When my mind rises above worldly concerns through having beheld nothing but skeletons in the cemetery, will there be any joy in graveyard cities which are filled with moving skeletons. Okay, so I've spent some time, like he suggested in the previous verses, in the cemeteries, looking at the decomposing bodies, looking at the skeletons that remain. You know, my mind has, that has helped my mind for a while go above worldly concerns, seeing that at the, you know, the bottom uh, the bottom line was it, bodies are skeletons. That's what's left over. Okay, so I've seen that. Then what happens when I leave the cemetery and I go back into town? You know, I have this memory of seeing skeletons. And now I look, and it's a city full of skeletons around me. Yeah, you you... Take off all the fancy clothes, all the hair, all the flesh. And that's basically what's walking around. And sitting here in this room, you know, it's a bunch of skeletons. We are all dressed up and decorated now so that we conceal that fact. But at the end of the day, that's, you know, what's left. Okay, so will there be any joy in graveyard cities which are filled with moving skeletons? So this is not to make us depressed. Actually, what this does, the effect it, it has, is it should make our mind very sober, very calm. Yeah? Because all the tingly, excited... You know, oh, what happens, this and this and all that is canceled. So the mind is just, it's peaceful. Yeah. You look at sentient beings as sentient beings, not as what I can get out of them. Okay. So it, you know, don't see it as, I mean, if when you're really attached to that kind of pleasure, then when you hear what the body is, you get depressed because you think all your happiness is getting canceled. Yeah. But when, when you see that all of that quote, quote, happiness is just a bunch of stuff that is exhausting and quite phony, then, you know, breaking this whole spell just makes the mind calm 
And like I said, you just can then relate to people as people and not out of sex objects and whether they can amplify my status or whatever, you know. 71. Furthermore, these unclean bodies of whoever I'm sexually attracted to are not found without paying a price. In order to obtain them, I exhaust myself and in the future will be injured in the hells. And now he goes into a whole section of saying everything you have to do to attract somebody and everything you have to do to get married and how marriage and family and the whole thing, I mean, the point is sex, okay? So he's saying it according to ancient Indian tradition where it is um, uh, arranged marriages, you know, and there's a whole routine and everything like that. But we have many of these same things in our culture in a different fashion. Yeah, you don't have your mother's best friend arranging for who you're going to marry, but you have the dating app, okay, where you yourself can create your own profile and make you look like who you want to be, although you aren't. <laughs> yeah? My college roommate was, um, her husband died some years back, and she writes me once a year at, at New Year's time, and I write her back. And she told me that she just decided to go on a dating app just for the heck of it. She was 70-something at that time. Yeah, but she always has had a very good figure, always looked very good. So she showed, she sent the new picture that, that she had taken of herself standing on a staircase that was, you know, going down and she was walking on it. Yeah. Because you, you have to stand in photos with your hand on your hip, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I remember when we were 17 and we did that. <laughs> now you're 70 something. Yeah, I think she stopped after that one, that one time. She's not the type to continue. Okay, but yeah, I mean, the whole thing. And then now, like newspapers will even arrange you on a date. Yeah, in the Washington Post, Washington Post which is a really legitimate newspaper, they have something called Date Lab. And you apply and you send in all your stuff like it's a dating application. And they fix you up with somebody and you go on a date and then they write about it in the Washington Post <laughs> and take a picture of the two of you together after your date. <laughs> what? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is how they get, not everybody wants to read about Trump. I mean, you, if you read about Trump, it's similar, you know? I mean, except he spends all day in front of the mirror. Yeah. 
getting his hair right. And first he has to get some hair, you know. Then he has to dye it. Then he has to comb it. Then he hairsprays it. So God forbid one, you know, wisp of hair moves. Yeah, I he wears makeup for sure. Yeah. So, you know, you, you see it in him. And poor Melania, oh my God. I, I mean, it's such suffering. Okay. So you have to pay a price for to get these unclean bodies of whoever you're attracted to. Okay. And you have to exhaust yourself to get them. And then, okay, yeah, maybe you're successful. Maybe they don't like you anymore. But then after, because of the negative karma you create, and he's going to go into all the way that we create negative karma soon, um, then in the future, it's creating the cause to be born in a hell realm where, you know, it really doesn't matter how you look. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was talking to who, maybe it was somebody here. Or maybe it was somebody else. Well, I was talking to, to one person who visited who, um, who went to college and, and he was telling me that there, there are certain date apps that aren't actually, they're, they're not actually for dating where you're looking for a relationship. They're one night apps. Okay. You were telling me about it. Yeah. So you want to tell everyone? <laughs> you know more about them than I do. <laughs> I think half the people here know more about it than you do. <laughs> so, so for those of you ab above a certain age or who've been in the monastery for too long, um, you know, there's, there's different apps on the phone and you, and I mean, they could be for a computer, but usually people use them on the phone. Um, where, yeah, you, you, don't have a lot of information about yourself. It's maybe three words, but then a couple of pictures. Um, and in some cases, you then kind of have a location on a map and you can be like, who's around within two blocks? And you're just kind of swiping left or swiping right based on looking at their photos. Um, it's not about a relationship. It's about who's close by and available right now. <laughs> That's <laughs> worth in the old days. The pursuit was the best part. Once you caught somebody, it was like, okay, life happens, right? But it was always when you when you were attracted to somebody, the game was yeah. the pleasure. The mm -hmm. mental how to dress up and how to do the dating and how to do the posturing and how to do the the chase was the best part. Mm -hmm. Once you got caught them, it was like you know. Once you, the dog catches the car, what what do they do with it? But but this kind of takes all the fun out of the actual game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. What about physical safety? They just ignore it. You upgrade them. Someone needs to be happy to put a bad grade. Oh. Uh, 
Oh, on, on their profile. Okay, so first you wait to get raped, and then you put the warning for other women. But you don't look out for yourself first. <laughs> there was some benefit to being a dinosaur, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and this one young man who was here was just describing to me, you know, because uh, he had one friend. It was actually a friend, but they, they, you know, so it wasn't just one night. It, it could be different nights because they were they were friends, so they kept in touch. You know, I guess it took the hassle out of having to look at the the dating app every time, you know. But he was telling me, um, you know, that he just assumed kind of like, well, the sex was there for offering. And one night she, she said, uh, I felt like you pushed me, you know, like you were pushing yourself on me. And he said, I never realized that, but I probably was. And, uh, yeah, I just, and then he said, yeah, you know, I probably was. It's like, you know, she comes over, we have a good time. Okay, I'm done. I'd want to take a shower, go home. So, um, yeah, so this is what Shanti Dev is talking about in a modern version. This is exhausting, you know? And then what people do to each other emotionally by treating each other like objects like this, you know? And what we do to ourselves by putting ourselves in that position where we can be treated like objects. Okay, 72. Okay, so he's, he left off with, I exhaust myself, you know? So now he's going to go into how you exhaust yourself. As a child, I am unable to increase my wealth. And as a youth, what can I do being unable to afford a wife? At the end of my life, when I have the wealth, being an old man, what good will sex be then? Uh, we should ask that question to Donnie. Okay. So as a child, you can't increase your wealth. You're a kid. Okay. But when you're a youth... You wish you could have created some wealth as a child because as a youth, you want to have a spouse. You want to have a partner. But you couldn't get the money when you were a kid, so as a youth, you can't afford a partner. Okay. Now, we make it all seem like love, but you have to have enough money. Yeah, Because I heard, I think you were telling me too on some of these dating apps, it looks like it's free if they live close by, but you still have to take them out for a soda or, you know, a coffee afterwards. Or <laughs> You still have to spend some money. You know, the sex isn't totally free. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you have to bring one wilted rose or something. Yeah. So it's not 
told, you still have to spend some money. But here, you know, they're actually looking for a spouse. But as a kid, they can't get the money. As a youth, you, you know, maybe you can go to work, but you still don't have enough money. It costs a lot, you know, because you have to go. And I mean, in ancient times, you, you had to give the opposite family presence. You know, in India, oh boy, the women, like I mentioned before, you know, she went to work in the man's house and her family had to give the man's family a dowry. That is definitely not equal, okay? But that's the way it was, okay? So, and even now, you know, we were reading about all these couples during COVID who, who want to get married, but they lost their job or something happened, so now they can't afford to get married or they can't afford to have the kind of wedding that they want, you know? And so there's suffering involved. And then at the end, when you've saved some money and you have the wealth, you know, you're an old guy and who's going to be attracted to you? You have to have a lot of wealth when you're an old guy. You have to be a sugar daddy. Otherwise, yeah. Okay. So just how exhausting it is. 73, some malicious and lustful people wear them out by working all day. And when they return home in the evening, their exhausted bodies lie prostrate like corpses. So you go and you work really hard at a job. You know, it's physically straining or mentally straining. You're at the office for who knows or at the factory or on the, the you know, construction site for hours and hours to get the money to support a family to or to find a, a partner. But when you get home, you are so exhausted that you have no energy for sex. You just lie there. Blah. And I'm sure sometimes the way, how hard people work, you know, I mean, people who do physical work are physically exhausted. People who have uh, the, the white collar jobs, uh, then they're expected to work 10, 12, 14 hours a day. Yeah. And that way you get the money to support your family to have your good-looking spouse and you're exhausted by the time you get home or you're in a bad mood because you were work all day and so you scream at the kids, you scream at your spouse. Okay, any questions or comments? I just want to clarify, in verse 71, mm -hmm. you said, I understood putting too much attention to the body is a cause to reborn in the hell? No. What If we put so much attention to the body that then we engage in negative actions, okay, maybe you want to look really good, you don't have enough money, so you... Um, what do you call shoplift some beauty products or you, um, uh, you, I mean, the dating apps are lies. Yeah. So you create the karma of lying. 
making yourself out to be somebody you aren't. Or even you meet the person in a bar, you're drinking, your behavior is more uncontrolled, very easy to create negative karma, like that. Mm -hmm. We were reading recently in a New York Times article that they're looking at this bias that people were really not aware of, but that tall men were often preferred uh, for jobs, for positions, over shorter men. Oh, everybody knows but then that. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm just talking to a dumb Canadian. Come on now. Okay. Yeah, you're from Canada. Well, excuse us. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, if the woman is too tall, then yeah. that's really yeah. not good at all. Right. It's not good. Unless you're in a basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very contradictory requirements. Mm-hmm. Your audiologist point, many years ago when I went to acting school, we had a vocal coach who was a woman and we did all kinds of exercises to help everyone find their authentic voice and its range, right? Because you need to do that as an actor. Most women's natural voices are much lower than how they present in life. And that shocked all of us too as trainee actors. You know, when you found your actual voice, it's like, oh, here it is. You know, in life, I talk like that to everyone. <laughs> it's quite shocking to see that in your own body. Mm -hmm. And then you hear women in a whole different way and what you're trying to use that upper tone for. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And how you sit there and look with your eyes. And that, yeah, that sweet little girl voice. Oh, I'm so charming and innocent. That's, that's what I call Susie cream, cream cheese. Okay. You know. Years ago, I read an autobiography by Jane Fonda, I think, it, who uh, was talking about this thing about being a sex object and living with it, working with it, and in a really thoughtful and mature kind of way. And she was talking about aging, and she and somebody, I think it was Sally Fields, or anyway, this group of actors of about the same age had agreed that they would never don't go the facelift route. So I just saw a photo of her the other day because she's just gotten cancer. She's 85-ish. Fabulous face work. I mean, the best. I've, I, because of my own family background, I know facelifts, and mostly they're pretty bad by the time you reach a certain age, and hers look completely fabulous. But I was disappointed. Because, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, even though the, the awareness of the pressure that she was under, when, yeah. when whoever knows what the personal decision was, I don't know. But when push comes to shove, and you're, you're especially somebody like her, you got to play the game. So it was just, that's the way that it's all set up. Yeah, you have to be very strong to resist that. I mean, that's why they talk about monastics swimming upstream and being white crows. Yeah, both men and women, because we're not playing that. Okay, let's dedicate. 